welcome to episode 45 of the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast. Yes, you know, last night I dreamt that somebody loved this podcast. No hope, no harm, just another false alarm. Yes, this is episode one of the Morrissey Trilogy. And those were lyrics to the song, Last Night I Dreamt That Somebody Loved Me. Welcome. Welcome to the Bobcast. Prepare to get a little sad, maybe. And that's kind of a cliche thing to say when dealing with the subject of Morrissey, though, isn't it? That the Moz and his fans are sad, solitary, sensitive people. Well, I already used Morrissey's nickname. Yeah, I guess this shit is getting real very quickly. Did you know Johnny Marr gave Morrissey the nickname Moz? Yep, yep, he did. Moz, by the way, is short for Misery Mosery. That's what Johnny Marr called Morrissey due to his affection of melancholy. Indeed. Maybe we'll get to a story behind that later. Maybe we won't. I don't know yet. But I do know this. There is a lot of ground to cover in this episode and in the following two episodes. Jesus, I mean a lot of stuff. There really is. One thing I do want to say at the very beginning of this episode Some of what I'm going to say might really piss you off. If you're a diehard fan of Morrissey, that is. I will be doing some for sure shit-talking on Morrissey about his politics, his worldview, even maybe just him in some ways, okay? I want to get that out of the way real quick. Now, why? Why am I talking about Morrissey to begin with? Why am I doing this trilogy? I kind of want to get to the bottom of what happened to him, what happened to Morrissey. Why did he change from this very sensitive, lyric-writing, lovely man into a For Britain supporter? And For Britain, by the way, is a far-right British political party. Well, let's let Morrissey speak for himself, shall we? Uh, In a recent interview that was conducted by Morrissey's own nephew, Sam Etsy Rayner, and published on Morrissey's own website, the uh, non-egotistical website, MorrisseyCentral.com, that is. When Morrissey was asked if he is a racist, this was his reply. If you call someone racist in modern Britain, you are telling them that you have run out of words. You are shutting the debate down and running off. The word is meaningless now. Everyone ultimately prefers their own race. Does this make everyone racist? Um, yeah, Morrissey, that, that kind of sounds racist to me, a little. Um, yes, in fact. Uh, that's fucking racist as shit. Everyone ultimately prefers their own race. No, that's not true. That's not true. Does this make everyone racist? No, it makes you fucking racist, dude. Kind of, by saying, that's such dipshit right-wing logic there, isn't it? Everyone prefers their own race. No, no, don't lump me in with your bullshit, dude, because I don't agree with that statement whatsoever. Boy, yeah, what the fuck? Oh, and this... Anne Marie Waters, okay, she's the founder of For Britain, okay? Let's learn about her a little bit. Waters advocated for the reduction of Muslim birth rates, stopping Muslim immigration into Britain, and accusing the EU of conspiring to turn Europe into an Islamic state. Wait, what does reduction of Muslim birth rates mean? That sounds suspiciously like sterilization to me. That's fucking straight Nazi shit. And Morrissey, I think he was on Fallon. He was wearing a button for this for Britain party. Like, what the fuck? Dude, that's gnarly shit. That's gnarly, gnarly shit. Yeah, and man, fuck Anne-Marie Waters, too. Fuck her and the fuck. What, dude, what a piece of shit, man. Wow, 
I'm starting this episode off very angrily right away. I noticed right out of the starting gate, like I'm kind of upset. God damn, these fucking people, man, they're crazy. But these are the kind of people that Morrissey is cool with these days, I guess. I don't know. Yikes, man. Jesus. I also want to kind of point something out that there are quite a few people that are like Morrissey in, in this respect. People who, when they were younger, were pretty normal, like fairly liberal thinking. I mean, I'm not talking diehard liberal, whatever, but they had fairly liberal views. And as they get older, they get more and more conservative, more xenophobic, more racist, right? A lot of people my age, I'm 50, have you noticed this? A lot of old punk rock dudes, especially, and old skater dudes have kind of taken this huge shift to this like really gnarly right-wing worldviews. Why? I was kind of thinking, I want to find out why that happens. I want to talk to somebody like that and kind of get an idea of why they ended up super conservative, super right-wing. But you know what? Fuck them. No, I don't. I don't. I think I know why. I think they're just scared. I think they became scared. Either they got locked into a job that they hate, and they're like, well, you got to work now. You know, just fucking work and talk shit to liberals all the time on Facebook because that's what we do for fun. I think those people, they're just scared. They're scared of life. They're scared of the world. Maybe they feel like they've been shit on. They need somebody to blame other than themselves. That's a big part of it, I think. Mostly, I think it's fear, though. But my whole point is, I, I don't really know what leads somebody down a path to end up like where Morrissey is. Well, we're going to learn a little bit about that. The only other thing I did want to say is, there is a possibility. Is Morrissey mentally ill? Right now, as I'm talking, I can't honestly answer that question. I really don't know. I do want to say, if I suspected that all of his bullshit, all Morrissey's bullshit, has been induced by some sort of mental illness or something... I would not be doing these episodes because that would be really shitty of me to, to kind of pick on a mentally ill person. That's not my style. That's not what I'm going for. I kind of don't think he is. As you'll see later, I think I see a kind of a tipping point or turning point for Morrissey later on in this episode. And we're going to get to that. We'll talk about it. So, yeah, I don't really think he was mentally ill. I just wanted to say if I thought he was, I would not be doing this. I do think Morrissey has struggled his whole life with certain things like depression, but I don't think that depression has turned him into what he has become. Long story short, if you love Morrissey, some of what I'm going to say might not be to your liking. So that is kind of a disclaimer. Also, let me state this clearly and up front. I fucking love Morrissey and the Smiths. I don't love him for his political views, for sure, but I do love Morrissey's solo music and I absolutely adore and love the Smiths even more than the Morrissey solo stuff, for sure. So I am trying to look at this whole story through the lens of someone who is a huge fan of Morrissey. I'm trying. By the end, I don't know anymore. And I don't want to talk about it too much yet, but I really, by the end of this, I really don't know. I really don't know how much more of the Smiths and Morrissey I can kind of take, even though I've kind of inundated myself with the Smiths, especially over the last five days, every day listening to them. Just for this episode, yeah, it's research, right? You get to listen to some great fucking... It, what a job, huh? Podcasting shit's great. What'd you do this week? Uh, I did research for a podcast, which means I sat around in my garage studio and uh, listened to the Smiths all week and wrote some bullshit. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I wish I got paid for it, actually. That'd be even better, but yeah, there you go. Uh, I had to throw that in there. So how are the episodes of this trilogy going to come together? How are they going to go down well, like this. This episode is part one of the trilogy. As I said, this is going to focus on the formation, 
the career of and the breakup of the Smiths and a little bit kind of after that. Some of the shenanigans the lads of the Smiths got themselves up to. We've also got three incredibly rad Smiths cover songs in this episode as well. And that very first song that was playing at the beginning was a cover of the Smiths songs Gene by Minneapolis, Minnesota's finest lads, the slow death. Um, finest lads. I don't Dave Strait was in the slow death and you don't fuck Dave Strait for the record. The next song in this intro to Morrissey via the Smiths will be the song Big Mouth Strikes Again by San Diego lads, Square Crow. And the very last song of this episode is A Rush and a Push and the Land is Ours by these fine lads from Oregon, Broadway Calls. Yes, shit is tight. Good songs on this episode for sure. Part two of the trilogy will focus on the Morrissey solo years, specifically the years 1988 until 2004. There's not too much music that I like from the Morrissey solo stuff after 2004, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about anything after 2004. For the record, that's upcoming, though, however. Lastly, the final episode in this trilogy will focus on Morrissey himself from birth to present day. Yes, that is when this shit is going to get really real. That's going to be good stuff for sure. So stay tuned for all of this. Now that I've gotten the outline for this whole series out of the way, the disclaimers, you know, yada, yada. Let's talk about the important stuff, the beer of the episode. And uh, guess what? There is no beer of this episode. No, other than the shitty MGD can sitting in front of me. Uh, sorry. I wish I had some of my favorite beer right now. One of the beers of Plan 9 Alehouse would be very, very wonderful, but I don't. Well, why don't we hear a little bit about Plan 9? Then we'll have a song from Square Crow, the Smith's cover of Big Mouth Strikes Again, then on to the rest of the episode. Stand by. A bear walked into Plan 9 Alehouse the other day and said, I'd like a beer. And can I see the food menu? The server looked at the bear and said, Sure, but why the big paws? Well, you can still bring your big paws down to Plan 9 Alehouse for your favorite beers and food, as Plan 9 can do growler fills for the beer and take out only orders for food there is no dine-in or drink-in at this time. Plan 9 does have food specials every week and many, many beers on tap, Check out the Plan 9 Alehouse website or give them a call for more information. You can drop by Plan 9 Alehouse at 155 East Grand Avenue in downtown Escondido, California. Give them a call at 760-489-8817 or visit Plan 9 Alehouse on the web at www.plan9alehouse.com. Plan 9 Alehouse, beer to the people. Every tooth in your head 
Well, thank you, Plan 9 Alehouse, for your support of the Bobcast. Also, big thank you to Squarecrow for that wonderful cover of Big Mouth Strikes Again. That's a great one. I know that is good. How did the Smiths start out? How did the band The Smiths begin? Well, apparently in May of 1982, guitar player Johnny Marr and a fellow by the name of Steve Pomfret, or Pommy, showed up on Stephen Patrick Morrissey's doorstep with the intention of starting a new band. Johnny Marr was a big fan of the New York Dolls. Johnny Marr had seen Morrissey sing in a band soon before Johnny visited his house and also knew that Morrissey had written a book about the New York Dolls. So Johnny Marr thought Morrissey might be interested in singing for the band he wanted to start as both Marr and Morrissey had the Dolls thing in common. This all happened in a town called Stretford, which is in the Manchester area in England, by the way. According to Morrissey, he and Johnny Marr got along great at that first meeting. Johnny Marr thought so too, saying this of that first meeting, it's still really clear it was a sunny day about one o'clock. There was no advance phone call or anything. I just knocked and he opened the door. As soon as the door opened, Pommy, that was Mr. Pomfret, took two very firm steps back which is one of the things that got me to talk so fast. It was just plain exuberance. Great. This was a start to a years-long friendship and collaboration between these two douches. I mean, dudes, guys, people. Um, Yes, uh, douche. You'll see. Yeah, you'll see. God, I'm already talking shit. Here we go. I'll tone it down for now, I promise. Remember my disclaimer at the beginning, though, okay? Morrissey called Marr the next day after they met, stating his interest in starting a band together, and they had their first practice together a few days later in Johnny Marr's room. They worked on a few songs, which Morrissey provided the lyrics for. Then, in the late summer of 1982, Morrissey had chosen a name for the band, The Smiths. Why The Smiths? Why that name? I've always kind of wondered this, and now I know. This is what Morrissey had to say about it, The Smiths. It was the most ordinary name, and I thought it was time that the ordinary folk of the world showed their faces. But that's cool. Yeah, that's kind of a cool story for the origin of a band's name. I do. I like that. Also around that time, late summer of 1982, Stephen decided he was publicly going to be known only by his surname, Morrissey, as he hated the name Stephen. I get it. Stephen, Stephen. It's an interesting name. My brother's name is Steve. And when you want to make him mad, what do you call him? Hey, Stephen, right? Stephen. Stevie, Stephen. That's an interesting name. (laughs) Okay, I'll stop. By 1983, Morrissey basically prohibited anyone close to him referring to him as Stephen. Just call me Morrissey kind of thing, right? Though Johnny Marr called Morrissey Moz, which, like I said very much earlier, was short for Misery Mosery, as Morrissey was a rather melancholy fellow in Johnny Marr's eyes. Pommy, the bass player, stuck around for a few practices, and then he just quit showing up, I guess. Another bass person came into the picture, and they hooked up with drummer Simon Wollstonecroft. Now, what's notable about drummer Wollstonecroft? He played drums for Johnny Marr's funk band. Yes, Johnny Marr was in a funk band before the Smiths called Freak Party. Freak Party. That, whoa. Yeah, that really sounds like a bad, bad funk band, doesn't it? Like you hire them to play your fucking wedding? No, well, I wouldn't hire a funk band to play my wedding, and we didn't do that, by the way. Yeah, no, no freak party. Ugh, Johnny Marr, terrible. Uh, Johnny Maher, I'm sorry. Now he, that was his actual name. Now, 
known as Johnny Marr. Wollstonecroft also played drums for an early version of The Stone Roses, eh, and also The Fall. Interesting. In August of 1982, the Smiths recorded their first demo, two songs, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle and Suffer the Children. Wollstonecroft quit soon after the recording, as he apparently said he did not like Morrissey's voice or the way he sang. Wow, dipshit, that's not very, that was a bad move on that dude's part. It sure was. You missed the boat. You definitely missed that boat. The band held auditions for drummers and found Mike Joyce, who was on Mushrooms when he auditioned for the Smiths. Good man, Mike Joyce, yes. Joyce did become the drummer for the Smiths from that point on throughout the entire career until they broke up much later. The Mushrooms did the trick, I guess, right? Yeah, okay. Actually, Mike Joyce was a fucking great drummer. No kidding. I love, love, love the way that guy plays drums. Gnarly. Really, a, truly a great drummer. In October of 1982, the Smiths played their first show at the Ritz in Manchester. It sounds like an actually, like a very interesting show. I would have loved to have seen this. It's I don't know if anybody's recorded it or if it's out there, but... It sounds pretty interesting. Morrissey apparently organized the aesthetic for the evening's performance, which included the band's friend, James Mercer, who introduced the band and was told by Morrissey that during their performance to stay on the stage and stand in this kind of area that was a tightly chalked circle on the stage. Just stand there. Morrissey told him, drink some red wine, make some elaborate hand gestures while we're playing. And uh, by the way, here, uh, James, can you hold these maracas? While we're doing our thing too. Cool. Thanks, bro. Maracas drinking drinking red wine and making gestures with his hands. Okay. Yeah. Or whatever. Well, the bassist of the Smiths at that time apparently didn't like the, and this is a quote unquote too, by the way, the gay image the band was projecting. And this lad was apparently not a very good bass player. So Morrissey and Johnny Mart kicked him the fuck out. That bassist was named Dale Hibbert, who, when asked in later years why he got kicked out of the Smiths, said, I have no idea why they asked me to leave. Ah, you knew the British accent, the really bad British accent, was going to come out at some point on this episode, right? Ooh, I, I got to remember to throw that in as much as I can just to annoy the fuck out of everyone. Yeah, yeah, I really do. Yeah, guy said, I have no idea why I was asked to leave. I don't know, Dale. Maybe being a homophobic fucking piece of shit and a shitty bass player but maybe that's why you didn't keep that job that could hopefully that's why anyways on to the next bass player andy rourke who andy rourke was also in freak party with johnny marr andy became the bass player through most of the rest of the smith's career uh he did get some time off at some point we'll We'll get to that here shortly. By late 1982, the Smiths recorded another demo, which contained the song, What Difference Does It Make? And played a couple more shows around Manchester. By now, the band had approached a couple of record labels with their demos. They had two demos by this point with a few songs, and they had been turned down both times. So Morrissey and Johnny Marr traveled to London and handed a demo tape over to someone from Rough Trade Records, an indie record label. Rough Trade said, okay, We'll do a couple singles for you guys at this point. No deal, no record signing deal, but we will put out a couple singles for you. Cool. Rough Trade released a single of the song Hand in Glove in May of 1983, which did, okay, yeah, it didn't do bad. It sold a few copies, that kind of thing. However, 
John Walters, the producer of John Peel's Radio 1 show, saw the Smiths at their second show in London and asked if they would record a session for the John Peel Radio 1 show. The Smiths did the radio session. And listen to this. Listen to what John Peel himself had to say about the Smiths. I was impressed because unlike most bands, you couldn't immediately tell what records they've been listening to. That's fairly unusual, very rare indeed. It was that aspect of the Smiths that I found most impressive. Wow, that's high praise from John Peel. Truly it is. And I think he was on to something. Think about it. What band do you know of that the Smiths sound like? I can't really readily, nothing readily comes to mind when I think about the Smiths. Like, what do they compare to? I'm sure there are bands out there and some of you obscure fucking music nerds are going to say, Oh, you fucking dipshit. It's, they sound like this band that had, you know, one seven inch in 1977. Okay, fine, fine. Yeah, you're probably right. God damn it. You're probably right. After the exposure of the Peel session, the Smiths signed a record deal with Rough Trade. Well, I should say Johnny Marr and Morrissey signed a record deal for the Smiths with Rough Trade. That little tidbit of information is kind of important later on. Just a little, a little. Next up, the Smiths went in to record their very first full-length, 1984's, simply titled, The Smiths, which, by the way, was essentially recorded twice. The band went in with a producer the first time, recorded the whole record, gave it to the label, gave it to Rough Trade. They said, no, we don't like it. Uh-uh, no, we don't want it. So Rough Trade hired another producer. The band had to go back into the studio and record it all over again. Jesus Christ, Wow. I mean, it's good in a way, because that record's fucking great, right? I wonder what the first one sounded like. Probably, I guess not that great, huh? A couple of singles did come out from the Smiths recording session, most notably, This Charming Man and What Difference Does It Make? Both singles did chart well on the UK singles chart. The Smiths full length came out in February of 1984, and it did do pretty good. The record peaked at number two on the UK album charts. That's great for a band's first release. Pretty good. The Smiths were developing a fan base and uh, you know, also a few haters. They did get their share of haters in the beginning, for sure. Three songs in particular between 1983 and 1984 had some people accusing the band of glorifying pedophilia. Holy shit, yes. Yes, the songs Handsome Devil, Reel Around the Fountain, and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle had certain tabloid newspapers in the UK accusing the band of endorsing pedophilia. Now, what, what I think, the context of the lyrics is really what you have to pay attention to in this issue. And I think these tabloids really misunderstood what Morrissey's kind of somewhat vague lyrics have to say. I don't know. I don't really want to get it too much into that. Otherwise, we'll be here all night if we start analyzing Morrissey's lyrics, right? I mean, for real. We would be here all this pod. I could people do entire podcast, a hundred fucking episodes just about Morrissey's lyrics. I'm sure. So I'm not getting too much into that. I just think in the context of what he's saying, they're highly personal. They're, he's talking about his youth. He's talking about growing up himself. Everything kind of reflects back on him, especially in these early days. So he's not talking about hurting other children or anything like that. He's more talking about himself and how he felt. That's my take. Okay. Check it out yourself. Let me know what you think. I'm always open to feedback. I hope everyone knows that. Write me anytime you want. You know, I'm all over the fucking stupid social media shit. So there you go. Yeah, once again, those songs that they were accused of having uh, 
pedophilia endorsement were Handsome Devil, Reel Around the Fountain, and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. So check it out if you'd like. The band did actually deny any type of pedophilia endorsement or references in any of the songs, by the way. There's one more controversial song on the full-length record, The Smiths, Suffer the Children. This song is about a series of child murders that took place around Manchester when Morrissey was a small child. These murders were called the Moors murders. And Jesus H. Christ, it was really, really fucking horrible. I read all about the Moors murders when I was scripting this. Oh, fuck, man. Yeah, it's heavy, heavy. Big side note here. I don't know how anybody does those the true crime podcasts. I don't. I really, really don't. All that shit, it's fucking disgusting, gnarly, and evil to me. It's evil. I, I don't like reading about the real-life stuff like that. True, like I'll read horror stories constantly. I love horror movies. I'm a big, big, big into horror, spooky, whatever. However you want to say it, the true crime stuff is just fucking nasty to me. I don't want to hear about it. That's just me. That's just me. True crime stuff, those are very, very, very popular podcasts these days, for sure. I just think it's all nasty. Needless to say, I'm not going to go into details about the Moors murders here. But the Smiths, really, they had to talk about it quite a bit after that record came out, that's for sure. The grandfather of one of the victims of the Moors murders heard the song Suffer the Children on the jukebox at a pub he was hanging out at, no less, he felt that the song, when he heard it, was glorifying or trying to commercialize the murders. And he was pissed, so he went to the media and said, hey, you know, hey, this song's a fucking lot of shit. You know, oh, was that, was that, oh, that was a terrible accent too, wasn't it? Well, Morrissey heard about it, heard about this person complaining, this grandfather of one of the victims complaining about the song. So guess what he did? He went and met with the guy, assured him, hey, this song is simply about the impact those murders had in my life. And this is why. Morrissey had read a book about those murders called Beyond Belief, a chronicle of murder and its detection that was written in 1967 by Emmeline Williams. That book did make a huge impression on Morrissey, and it stuck with him for a very, very long time. As I kind of hinted at earlier, Morrissey was a young child when all these murders took place, near where he lived. So that hit kind of close to home for him, especially when he read about it. It really touched him. Once the grandfather heard the story from Morrissey himself, the grandfather was no longer upset about the song. Now, another thing, in fact, Morrissey became friends with a woman named Ann West, and she was the mother of one of the victims, Leslie Ann Downey, who was mentioned by name in the song Suffer the Children. See, I, I mean, now I'm going, well, fuck, maybe Morrissey's not such a bad guy. Especially not back then. Especially not back in those days. Up next for the Smiths, Meet His Murder came out in early 1985. That was the band's second full-length record. Remarkable about Meet His Murder, other than the shift in lyrics to more political and more social causes. Duh, the title track. I mean, in fact, it said that Morrissey forbade the other members of the band from being photographed eating meat. Wow. There's an argument in here somewhere, but I'm not going to get into it. Now, what was I saying? Okay. Remarkable about Meat is Murder is the fact that it's the only Smiths record to hit number one on the British charts, other than compilation records by the Smiths. During the time when Meat is Murder came out, Morrissey kind of upped his political comments in interviews. He talked a bunch of shit about Thatcherism. Good, because Margaret Thatcher was a 
fucking piece of shit that fucked Britain up like horribly badly. Uh, he talks shit about the British monarchy. Also, another good. They're a bunch of fucking twats on the dole, if you ask me. Not useful whatsoever. Why do they pay those people? What the? They don't do shit. They get to live in the lap of luxury for for being born. Man, man, fuck them. Morrissey also talks shit about Band Aid. Band Aid. Why would Morrissey talk shit? Huh? Hmm. Band Aid. The the famine relief thing, right? Ethiopian famine that took place during the 1980s. Yes. Morrissey did talk shit about Band-Aid. This is what he had to say. One can have great concern for the... Oh, let me do that British in a British voice real quick. Can I do a Morrissey voice? Let's find out. One can have great concern for the peoples of Ethiopia. Ah, I can't do a Morrissey voice. What? I'll just read it straight. One can have great concern for the people of Ethiopia, but it's another thing to inflict daily torture on the people of England. That torture being having to listen to that song, Feed the World Over and Over Again. Remember that song? Feed the world. Yeah, I won't quit my day job, by the way. I, I don't have one. Okay, I'm with Morrissey on all those points. Honestly, I completely, completely am with him on all of those points. Fuck Margaret Thatcher. Uh, fuck the Royals. And fuck that Feed the World song because I got beaten over the head by that song when I was a child. And I'll never be the same again. So for the rest of 1985... The band toured and toured. They also began recording their next record, 1986's The Queen Is Dead. This is where things are going to start to get a little bit more interesting. On that note, let's take a quick break for some words from our friends at Gravebound Clothing. I have a question for you. What size t-shirts do you think most psychics wear? I would suspect they wear a medium. You don't need to be psychic to foresee that Gravebound clothing makes some of the greatest t-shirts around. From the simple Gravebound logo tees, to the Skull Bomber DIY or Die tee, to the Council of Doctors tee, Gravebound has the goods that you need. My personal favorite, the I'm the Goat long sleeve t-shirt. This is a shirt you need to see, greatest of all time. That's how you'll feel about yourself when you wear a Gravebound clothing t-shirt. Gravebound doesn't just sell t-shirts. They also have Gravebound logo beanies, zip-up hoodies, and snapback hats. Visit www.gravebundclothing.com to check out their full line of rad clothing. You'll be glad you did. Remember, you too can be the greatest of all time if you go online and visit www.graveboundclothing.com today. Well, thank you to the fine people of Gravebound Clothing. They do make some super, super rad stuff. Check them out. There will be links on the website. Yeah, check them out. Back to the Smiths. The Queen is Dead full-length record was released in June of 1986. And that record hit number two in the UK charts. However, all was not well for the lads of the Smiths. The Queen is Dead was ready for a release in November of 1985. But the Smiths record label, small independent rough trade, withheld release of the record until June of 1986. Eight months. Why? Well, that is a very long story. I'm going to summarize it. It seems the Smiths had somewhat, they were starting to outgrow Rough Trade. They were having some problems with the label. 
especially in their minds, the collective minds of the Smiths, and the Smiths were shopping for a new major label deal. EMI threw the band an offer that was especially tempting, apparently. Rough Trade got wind of some of the meetings the Smiths were having with these major labels, including EMI, and slapped a legal injunction on the band, preventing the release of any Smiths record on any other record label other than Rough Trade. The Smiths still owed Rough Trade two records. Keep that in mind. Rough Trade got a little nasty with the Smiths, didn't they? They slapped a legal injunction on them, saying, no, you fuck, you don't, no, you don't fuck around on us. Uh-uh. No, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. But the Smiths were trying to break contract with Rough Trade. That was kind of where things were going. So I guess Rough Trade really didn't do anything too, too shitty to the Smiths. And Rough Trade had been supporting the Smiths since the beginning, more or less. Apparently, Morrissey and Johnny Marr were fairly demanding of the label. In some ways, Rough Trade, they were having a hard time keeping up with the Smiths' real and exaggerated needs. Do you want an example of how the Smiths retaliated against Rough Trade for not just the delay of the release of The Queen is Dead, but also what the Smiths were starting to see as kind of a shitty record deal? The song on The Queen is Dead, frankly, Mr. Shankly, is a jab at Rough Trade directly, especially the line, I'd rather be famous than righteous or holy any day. Huh. That line refers to that kind of good guy image that Rough Trade had, like the small, like the underdog. They had a pretty stellar image in those days, I guess. During this time, Johnny Marr also was drinking a lot. Bassist Andy Rourke was addicted to heroin. Uh-huh. And the drummer, um, well, drummers are just kind of a pain in the ass and they're drunk most of the time anyways. I don't know anything about that, but yeah. And apparently Morrissey did drink. I can't, ver- this is this is driving me fucking crazy. Morrissey drank. I can't really verify if he was like a partier, like getting fucked up all the time. Or if he'd just go out and get drunk every once in a while, just have a drink every now and then, that kind of thing. I don't, I can't really get any kind of thing that I feel is true about it. So I'm just going to leave it at this. Morrissey did drink. Not much, though. That's that's my opinion, okay? May not be fact. That is my opinion. I did find a story, though, from one of the douchebags or uh, gentlemen in Oasis saying he went out on the piss. He went out and got fucking wasted with Morrissey. And this is sometime in the last couple of years. This is not an old thing. Saying they went out and they got fucked up with Russell Brand, who was sober. So it has to be within like the last, I don't know, maybe four or five years, something like that. Russell Brand drove them around while they, Morrissey and this dude from Oasis, one of the Gallagher brothers, just got fucked up the whole time, causing trouble, talking shit to people, all kinds of things. I'll leave a link to that story on the website for sure. It's pretty funny, actually, and kind of weird, too, but anyway. I always thought Morrissey was like a teetotaler, right? That he didn't drink, that he didn't do anything. Totally clean. I I don't know. I guess I'm wrong. I have no idea. Let's just say there was trouble brewing for the Smiths. Yeah, uh, trouble uh, brewing for the Smiths. Beer reference. Get that? Yeah, drinking beer. Okay. Bassist Andy Rourke did get kicked out of the Smiths for his heroin habit in early 1986. Now, get this. He was kicked out via a note left on his car's windshield by Morrissey that said, and I'm quoting, Andy, you have left the Smiths. Goodbye and good luck, Morrissey. (laughs) That's so Morrissey, isn't it? It seems like it. That's so Morrissey. That should be a catchphrase. You're welcome, Morrissey. Let's push that. That's so Morrissey. Yeah, there you go. Work is out. The Smiths get 
this dude from Aztec Camera to play bass for a while. But then they asked Rourke to come back not long after, in April of 1986 to be exact. The Smiths did keep Aztec Camera Guy on rhythm guitar for a while and even recorded the songs Panic and Ask with him. Nice. I love the song Panic. Who doesn't, right? More touring, more drugs, more boozing is what 1986 was like for the Smiths. Things, though, were getting more and more tense between them. Craig Gannon, by the way, that's the name of this this guy from Aztec Camera that was playing rhythm guitar in the Smiths. He quit in October of 1986. Yeah, I mean, really, you got things had to have been bad in that band for you to leave the Smiths kind of at more or less the peak of their popularity at that time. Things had to have been bad for that guy to be like, fuck you guys. I'm like, no, I don't want to hang out with you fucking idiots anymore. I'm out. Later. Bye. In July of 1986, the Smiths had settled with Rough Trade that they could leave the label as soon as they gave Rough Trade one more record after The Queen is Dead. January of 1987 comes along, and the Smiths are in the studio to meet that Rough Trade contract requirement, right? The Smiths were recording their final record on Rough Trade and their last record of new material that would be released, period. That record was going to be called Strange Ways, Here We Come. The recording wrapped in April of 1987, and in May of that year, Johnny Marr called a meeting of the band, and he tried to quit. Johnny called the meeting at a chip shop or a fish and chips restaurant in Notting Hill, England, the band did convince Johnny Marr not to quit, said, no, stay on. Let's do a few more songs, see how things go. So the Smiths went in to record a couple songs to use as B-sides for singles off of Strangeways. During this final recording session of the Smiths, rumor is the band was like not getting along at all. They were barely talking, just short of being openly hostile to each other. Things were not good for them, it doesn't look like. In July of 1987, Johnny Marr did quit the Smiths for good. Now, every single thing I've read about Johnny Marr leaving the Smiths says he and Morrissey just could not get along anymore, period. That's everything I've read. No matter what, no matter what kind of the story is, it's like Morrissey and Marr, they can't get along. They can't be in the same band anymore. But when asked, Johnny Marr says he left the band because he wanted wider musical scope. Hmm. Not because he wanted to fucking kill Morrissey. I'm thinking he, him and Morrissey couldn't get along. Uh, every, every source out there says they couldn't get along. That that was the impetuous behind the breaking up of the band. Johnny and Morrissey couldn't get along. Without Johnny Marr, though, the Smiths tried to plug along for a little bit longer with new guitarist Ivor Perry, even attempting to record some more B-side stuff for singles off of Strangeways. Ivor Perry says that he was very uncomfortable being in the band, that they wanted another Johnny Marr. He couldn't fill those boots. And then apparently this, this recording session ended with Morrissey upset, and he just ran out of the studio, and that was it. They never finished a single song. Strange Ways Here We Come was released in September of 1987, but by then the Smiths had completely broken up. That's it for the Smiths. Done. Jesus. Wow, they weren't around for very long. What, five years? That was it, 82 to 87. Holy smokes. Yeah, that, th there's a lot to talk about with the Smiths. There really is. I could have done a whole trilogy just on the Smiths. There's a lot of weird little side stories and things and you know interactions between these characters, more or less, that are very, very interesting. I don't want to do a whole trilogy just on the Smiths. 
I really want to focus more on Morrissey. This is setting the stage for everything that's to come. So I did leave a lot of stuff out, more or less because of this focus that I'm intending on doing with Morrissey, okay? I apologize for that. If there's anything like, well, why didn't you say anything about this story? Well, this is why. In the in the interest of keeping it more focused on Morrissey, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm just setting the stage for everything to come here. Okay. I, I do have to say this. I'm really bummed that the Smiths did break up, that they couldn't get along, you know, especially Johnny and Morrissey. Really, I would have loved to have seen what would have happened if they had stayed together. I don't think Strange Ways is definitely not the Smiths' finest hour. I don't think it's the best stuff they ever did. But I think the Smiths probably had a couple more decent or good records in them. Eh, it's kind of sad. I'll touch more on the Johnny Marr Morrissey relationship in the final episode in this trilogy for sure. There's more to tell there. And I think it's going to be more applicable to my way of telling this story to have that information out in the last episode. So the Smiths are broken up. That's it. They're done. Well, what's next? What's next for the members of the Smiths? Obviously, Morrissey went on to his very successful solo career. Johnny Marr did some stuff. Eh, nothing really worth talking about. I don't think. Not in my opinion. No, not really. What about Andy Rourke and Mike Joyce? The bassist and drummer of the Smiths. The In that order, by the way, the rhythm section of the Smiths. They actually, both those guys, did some really rad stuff after the Smiths. Right after the Smiths broke up, and both of them even came back and recorded a couple singles with the newly solo Morrissey in 1988-1989. Wow. I mean, hell, Mike Joyce, the drummer, went on to tour with and record with the Buzzcocks in 1990 up to 1991. Also, both Rourke and Joyce have done quite a bit of session-type music work since the end of The Smiths. And weirdly enough, both of them ended up with a DJ gigs much later on, like currently, like now, Joyce and Rourke both have radio shows in New York, in New York City, where they do actually work together from time to time. Yeah, weird. Rhythm sections. You know, they stick together, don't they? They sure do sometimes. Eh, not really. One last thing before I come up to the end of this episode. There is a lawsuit. Oh, yes, it wouldn't be a deep dive band expose Bobcast without a couple of nasty lawsuits in there, would it? No, it sure wouldn't. The Danzig trilogy proved that, didn't it? And I thought they were so happy. Well, these, yeah, the Smiths and Morrissey have their share of lawsuits too, don't they? To set the stage for this, this big lawsuit, this is how the royalties for recordings and performances went for the Smiths. Johnny Marr got 40%. Morrissey got 40%. Andy Rourke and Mike Joyce, they got 10% each. Man, that's kind of shitty, isn't it? It's like they're just hired guns, right? The not members of the band, not contributing members of the band. They're just a couple dumb fucks that were along for the ride kind of thing. I mean, I think both those guys fundamentally gave the Smiths their sound. I think it was it's a package. It truly, truly is. Can you imagine how the band would sound without that particular drummer and that particular bass player? Uh, you know, I can, and I don't think it would sound nearly as good with somebody else doing, filling those those roles, to be totally honest with you. Well, Rourke and Joyce sued Marr and Morrissey for higher royalty percentages, they wanted 25% for each of them to be exact, so the split would be 25% for all four members. As this lawsuit started, Andy Rourke more or less immediately settled for 83,000 pounds, and he kept his 10% royalty rate indefinitely. That's what he settled for. See, he was deeply in debt. I don't know. Heroin's a hell of a drug. 
Mike Joyce, however, ended up winning the case, winning the lawsuit. He was awarded 1 million pounds in back royalties, plus he got the 25% royalty rate henceforth. Wow, fucking oh, drummer's revenge. Yes, he got it. He fucking won. The judge in the case had a few things to say about all the parties involved. The Smiths. He said of Mr. Joyce and Mr. Rourke that they had impressed him as straightforward and honest. He continued, Mr. Morrissey is a more complicated character. He did not find giving evidence an easy or happy experience. To me, at least, he appeared devious, truculent, and unreliable where his own interests were at stake. The judge was also critical of Mr. Marr as seeming to the judge to be willing to embroider his evidence to a point where he becomes less credible. He concluded that where Mr. Morrissey's evidence differed from that of Mr. Joyce and Mr. Rourke, he preferred that of Mr. Joyce and Mr. Rourke. That quote is from Wikipedia, by the way. The judge also ranked the band members by IQ. I don't know why this fucking Great Britain and England, they're so weird. To me, sometimes this judge ranked band members by IQ with Johnny Marr, probably the most intelligent of the four, Rourke and Joyce, unintellectual, and Morrissey, presumably somewhere in between. (laughs) What the fuck? Wow. (laughs) So... The rhythm section guys are, uh, you know, trustworthy dipshits, apparently. Johnny Marr is super smart, but he's a liar. And Morrissey is somewhere in between, and he's an aggressive liar. Wow. Now, here's a snippet of what Morrissey had to say about the court case, also quoted from Wikipedia, by the way. The court case was a potted history of the life of the Smiths. Should I try my Morrissey accent one more time? This court case was a potted history of the life of the Smiths. Mike talking constantly and saying nothing. Andy, unable to remember his own name. Johnny, trying to please everyone and consequently pleasing no one. And Morrissey under the scorching spotlight in the dark being drilled. How dare you be successful? How dare you move on? To me, the Smiths were a beautiful thing, and Johnny left it, and Mike has destroyed it. Oh, fuck me. Here comes that right-wing fucking I'm-the-victim bullshit, Morrissey. By the way, that was a much, much, much better Morrissey impression than I had done previously in this episode. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, that was actually pretty good. I'm going to keep leave that in there. I'm not going to cut that shit out. No, no, that was good. This is where it starts. This is what I'm thinking. This is where the shitty Morrissey really is starting to publicly show his true colors, okay? I guarantee you this is it. This is a big red flag in Morrissey's journey to shithead Nazi Morrissey status, The main clue, here's the clue that I think anyone who says in kind of this weird condescending, sarcastic way or whatever, how dare you be successful, has whatever the fuck the conservative flag is just shoved so fucking far up their own ass, it's coming out their own mouth. I Fuck that. Yeah, that dude, that is such a conservative hallmark. Oh, how dare I be successful? Some liberal might come along and take all my money from me. And by the way, Morrissey, ha 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 You got yours. Jesus Christ, you fucking crybaby. Oh, boy. Should I try and justify all the shit I just talked about, Morrissey? Was Morrissey really that right wing back then? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. He was really headed down that path. That's like the first kind of public statement clue 
that I've ever read about him where it's like, oh, you're getting to that selfish level of conservative, of fame and conservatism where you want to keep every dime you've ever made. That really shitty, like, fuck everyone else, let them die. We're seeing that in these days of the coronavirus for sure, too. I don't know. I, I do think Morrissey, he was heading down that right wing shithead path for sure. Morrissey tried to appeal the court's decision in 1998, and he fucking lost. He lost that appeal, so I'm sure he spent a shitload of money on legal fees. Johnny Marr did not try to appeal the decision for the record. And the very last thing, what did Morrissey have to say when asked if Rourke and Joyce were shortchanged by the court's original verdict after this, you know, reattempt at opening this case? Uh, by the way, thank you again, Wikipedia. Here's the quote from Morrissey. They were lucky. If they'd had another singer, they'd never have gotten further than Salford Shopping Center. Arrogant fucking bastard. Wow. What a douche, man. Jesus. Morrissey's own lawyer even said about that statement that that was an arrogant thing for him to say. Yeah, no shit. Okay, well, I'm done talking about Morrissey and the Smiths for now. Whew. Yeah, that was a lot of stuff. It packed into a convenient little package here in some ways, but goddamn, I'm telling you. This is going to be a rough series for me. I, I'm weird with Morrissey now. I loved Morrissey and the Smiths for sure before I started doing this. But after reading all this stuff, really getting into it, it's kind of like, man, fuck that dude. What a fucking, what a piece of shit in some ways. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. It feels like to me, by the time I get to the end of this series, I am going to have an entirely different outlook on any music that I hear from any period in Morrissey's career. Maybe that's bad. Maybe it's actually really good. I don't know. We'll see. For now, though, I am done. Thank you so much for listening. That was fun. That was a bummer in some ways. Like I said, I'm losing my faith a little bit in Morrissey and hence the Smiths and everything else he was associated with, which sucks. But I did have a lot of fun researching for this episode, recording it, and also listening to the Smiths for days on end while I was writing this episode, I am going to leave you with a really fucking great Smiths cover by the band Broadway Calls. And that song is a rush and a push. This is a seriously a great, great version of the song, by the way. What about Broadway Calls? Well, let me give you a little info on them. They are originally from Rainier, Oregon. Though now one of them lives near Portland, Oregon. The other two live near Longview, Washington. Broadway Calls is Ty Vaughn on guitar and vocals, Adam Willis on bass and background vocals, and Josh Baird on drums. Thank you so much, Broadway Calls, for letting me use that song. I love it. It's great. And thank all of you for listening so much. I really, really do appreciate it. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Bobcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Here is Broadway Calls with a rush and a push. Thanks again for listening.